Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Matt and I are going to recap Sea Otter 2019 for you. So you've probably been seeing our coverage over the last several days of all the new products and things we saw at Sea Otter. But if you haven't been keeping up or you're more of the podcast type, we're going to recap it all for you right here. So let's start with the perhaps more exciting part, the bikes that we tested out at Sea Otter. Uh, Matt and I actually went out to Monterey or to California day early so that we could test out some bikes outside of the show. And one of the new bikes that you got to test, Matt, is the Santa Cruz Mega Tower. What would you think of that bike? It was, oh man, it was a, it was another long travel 29er. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, we said that all last year and I think this is maybe my first ride on a long travel 29er this year. Um, it was fun. Yeah, I mean, kind of just these short one-day rides are hard to hard to really say a lot about the bike, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was fun. It pedaled a lot better than I would have expected. I think most similarly, I could draw a comparison to the Pivot Firebird that I rode last year. Okay, you know, because it's in that same realm. It's you know, big twenty-nine-er enduro bike, and the Mega Tower felt a lot more well-rounded than the Firebird. Like the Firebird, I you know, just wanting to go downhill on it. That's pretty much all I wanted to do. The Mega Tower was a lot more pedalable. I mean, you could tell it was it was ready to shred and ready to get into some pretty sketchy stuff downhill, but mm-hmm. it pedaled a lot better than I would have imagined as well. Yeah, and that was really cool. Um, you got to ride it in Santa Cruz on some of the local trails there. And I know a few years ago, Greg did a review of the Bronson, I think, when it was updated. One of the older Bronson's when it was updated and his initial review, I think he tried it in Moab first and was just like, eh, it's all right. But then got a chance to test it in Santa Cruz on the trails there at the UC Santa Cruz campus. Some of the trails official, some of them unofficial, but he found that it worked really well for those trails, which I guess makes sense. Did you find that? And what, what did you think of the trails there? Um, I had a blast on the trails. Yeah, like you mentioned, some were official, some unofficial, and the whole land access stuff is it's kind of crazy down there. Um, it's not something I'm used to where here in Colorado, it's just like, it's you know, if it's trail, chances are it's mountain bike um, or maybe it's hike only, but... Yeah. Or at least it's clear. Like in Colorado, it's pretty clear. Usually when you roll up to a trailhead, like what you're allowed to do there. Yeah, exactly. To where in Santa Cruz is a lot less clear. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, I mean, the trails are amazing though. I love them. Very BC-esque, I'd say in a lot of ways, just with the really thick forests and um, super tall trees. Yeah. We get on some flowy stuff. We get into some kind of like fall line, tight, sketchy, rocky, a little bit of rooty stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I really wish that uh, that we could have spent some more time on those because it seems like there's a lot of really fun trails around there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I tested a bike on those same trails, a bike that we can't talk about yet. So I guess a week after this podcast is first published, uh, you'll be hearing about that bike. But 
Yeah, the trails are really unique. I thought they reminded me in parts to Pisgah for the same reasons that you mentioned, you know, dense forest and some of it pretty steep, some of it like kind of eroded and like sketchy and like you don't know exactly what's coming up around the next corner. Yeah. Again, because a lot of them are unofficial trails. They weren't built, you know, to some certain spec for mountain biking. You know, they were just somebody wanted to go that way. And so that's where the trail goes now. But yeah, I thought it was a really cool place to to test out bikes. And especially it sounds like a bike like the Mega Tower is great for that because yeah you can you can just ride it really fast and not necessarily worry too much about what's coming around the bend yeah definitely a ready for anything type of bike Mm -hmm. yeah way more playful than i would have thought also yeah and with the geometry these days it's like you can pretty much have a bike of any size and it's going to want to jump and and pop and play around but um yeah very agile for a big 29er like that yeah that's cool so one of the bikes that i rode at sea otter and sea otter is not a great place for testing bikes one it's just a pain to get the bike out of the venue and onto the trails but two the trails themselves are generally really mellow like cross-country type trails and so not a lot of technical stuff but so knowing that i decided to take out a Raleigh Tokel 3. And this is a bike that I had seen some info on before the show. And it's a hardtail. It's a really affordable hardtail, $999. So yeah, I figured the trails there at Seattle would be a good place to test it. And I just wanted to know what a what a $1,000 mountain bike feels like. And the bike looks really good. It's got really nice graphics and paint and everything. And it's got the, all the right specs too. You know, it's a hardtail. It's got a 120 millimeter fork on the front, which we're seeing a lot more of these days. I didn't realize how common that was becoming. You know, a few years ago, most hardtails were shipping with a 100 millimeter fork. So uh, it's got a it's got a longish er, <laughs> if that's a word, fork. <laughs> uh, so they're going for like the trail bike thing with it, and then uh, it's got. 2.8 inch 27.5 plus tires. Oh, interesting. And yeah, and a one by 11 drivetrain. So on paper, it looks awesome. It's a great price. I was the first person to ride this bike. Like they literally just like brought it out of the trailer and were like, here you go. And it was hard to tell, you know, exactly how the bike rides. Like it had flat pedals on it, like the plastic flat pedals that come with a bike. So it clearly was very entry level. And the fork on it is a SR Suntour, you know, like a pretty basic fork, uh, which wasn't the greatest. So I guess after all that, you know, I rode it around for a few miles on a loop down some of the hills there and back up them. I think what I came away with is just that I was hoping that I was going to get away with something on this bike, right? I thought that like, oh, this is a thousand dollar bike. Like this is a really well-kept secret or this is a good value for people who are, you know, trying to get more, more bike for their buck. But, you know, unfortunately I I think what I came away with was just, you know, it rides like a thousand dollar bike. Like if that's your budget and that's what you can spend, you know, that's kind of what you can expect. You know, it's a pretty good bike. It's again, on paper, it looks great. And just aesthetically, like it's a really good looking bike, but it still doesn't have quite the performance and the fun factor of, you know, a bike where you're going to spend a little bit more on a hardtail. You know, I would, I would say 
probably around that $1,500 price point is where you start to really get more fun, versatile bikes, I think. Yeah, it sounds like a good mountain bike for somebody who's not that into mountain biking yet. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, it's hard to, I really expected, I don't know why I did, but I expected or I was shocked when it didn't have a dropper post. And again, at that price point, they can't, they can't put one on there. But, but then I figured, okay, so this is a thousand dollar bike. Like maybe you could put a $200 dropper post on it. So you're in for 1200 and you know, you could have a slightly more capable bike, but unfortunately it, it's not drilled for internal routing. So you're gonna have to get an externally routed dropper post and yeah, it's just not as clean. So I don't know. I was a little disappointed with the bike. It isn't one that I would probably recommend uh, to people who are looking for a hardtail, but, but yeah, it was, it was good to check it out. Yeah. That's a bummer. I mean, our readers are always asking. It's usually when we have a bike review up, uh, the price is one of the first things they mention. Mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, with that rally, it's, it's kind of like, well, there you go. It's, um, <laughs> a thousand bucks is going to get you a, a bike that's will maybe get you on some, um, pretty easy going trails, but it, you know, the parts are probably going to wear out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be super smooth experience. Yeah. It's like, I, I want it. I want it to be good. Like I want there to be this bike that's affordable and is really fun and performs really well. And, you know, unfortunately this, this isn't that bike. And honestly, I, I haven't really found one of those bikes yet. I, again, I think you're probably looking at at least $1,500 for a hardtail before you find something that's like, pretty fun and you could enjoy it. I mean, like the Marin San Quentin comes to mind for, especially if you're like a more aggressive rider than I am, like more aggressive than just like a trail rider. You want to really hit dirt jumps and, and ride really fast downhill. Um, that one does seem to be a good value and there are builds that are priced. Yeah. Closer to 1500 bucks. Yeah. And it's all got the modern specs and everything to where it makes it easier to upgrade as, as you own it. And fit a dropper post or anything else for sure so matt you got out on a really interesting bike at sea otter the structure what's the name of the bike the the brand is structure right but the bike does it have its own name yeah it's called the structure cycle works one the scw1 right and it's so it's this crazy linkage front end you've probably seen some other media pubs post about it on instagram or youtube because um, it got a lot of attention there so it's a front end linkage system it doesn't have a telescoping fork they call the linkage system wtf or <laughs> without telescoping fork so yeah it's uh the suspension front and rear is controlled both by um, what are traditionally rear suspension shocks mm-hmm. So you've got like a DVO rear shock in the rear and then one in the front uh, and then this linkage that controls the travel up front. And so it's uh, 150 mil of travel front and back. And yeah, it's odd looking. I wouldn't say it's prettier than a uh, a traditional bike. It's a head turner. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's interesting. So I got some, I got a few miles in on that. And uh, I mean, all I can say is that it's it's fun. Like it's a lot of fun just to experience something like that. So what was the, what was the idea behind the design? Why did they go through such links to get this bike? I mean, it looks like you said, it looks like nothing that's out there, but there's gotta be a reason behind doing all that, right? Yeah. So 
I didn't catch the full story. I need to reach out and ask them. But from what I overheard, the engineer or maybe the engineer's brother or something was on a traditional mountain bike with a telescoping fork, mm-hmm. came into a corner or down a steep or something like that, grabbed the brakes, had a ton of brake dive, went over the bars and I think broke his collarbone or something. Mm. And uh, from there, just went into like, okay, how can we reduce brake dive? How can we... Because one of the things that, and this makes like a lot of sense when you think about it with telescoping forks is that, you know, if you're going down something steep, maybe you're grabbing the brakes, that front end collapses. And so your head angle steepens uh, with the more brake dive you get. And it steepens by quite a bit. Like, I mean, I think he was saying you can take like a 65 degree head angle bike and it would jump up to, I don't know, anywhere from like... 70 to 80 degrees like it's a huge jump in the steepening of the head angle so the whole goal was to basically make a more balanced feeling bike reduce some of the brake dive i mean those are yeah from what i caught those were the Mm -hmm. main goals with the bike and maybe just to do something different you know yeah because engineers like to play around with things like that (laughs) right and yeah like i said i grabbed it for like a quick hour and kind of uh went on the trails right outside the venue wasn't sure what to expect but like you know, started off as like, oh, I just want to like bunny hop this thing and see what it does. And so you get so much um, like the rebound out of the system is a lot more natural feeling mm-hmm. than with a fork. So, you know, if you kind of bunny hop up and come down, feel the suspension compressed, like it feels a lot more natural to sort of boing back up. Yeah. Huh. Climbing was interesting. Like the rear suspension is just a horse link. Um, then they had a DVO rear shock. And with a lot of the suspension stuff, like it's hard for me to say it did this well or it didn't do that well mm-hmm. um, just because it was a quick ride and didn't really get to spend a whole lot of time tuning it. But yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of pedal bob. I mean, the traction was good. And then what you notice a lot more um, is pedal bob in the front end hmm. to where, I don't know, um, I haven't really noticed much pedal bob out of a telescoping fork in any considerable time that I've spent on any recently. Right. Yeah. Unless you just have, don't have enough air in your fork. (laughs) Like that's the only time you had experienced that. And so that was a lot more prevalent on this bike and you can kind of see it because you have these two bars that like triangulate out towards the front of the bike. And this is like in a video too. Uh, We'll get a video review up later, but you can kind of see it and you can see how much pedal bob the front end uh, ends up having when you're climbing. And so for me, like it, it wasn't a great climber, but I mean, I guess the whole point of this bike was to design something that would descend a little bit more naturally, reduce brake dive. And then um, I started descending and like, yeah, I was actually really surprised at how comfortable I felt descending on the bike, like right away. The Geo felt really comfortable. It felt like it tracked better through berms. That brake dive is def- definitely reduced through the berms. You feel like a lot more centered felt like I could hit corners a little bit harder. And then, yeah, like it was playful. Yeah, it was fun. You know, got to jump it around a little bit. And yeah, just play with it on descents for for a few miles. Yeah, it was just really interesting. Uh, and one of the things I noticed is, and this again goes into tuning and everything, is that over high-speed bumps, that front end really started to buck up hmm. uh, a lot. And so that was one of the things I mentioned to him when I came back. And he's like, yeah, well, it's, you know, and the most racy sort of tune that we have it. I guess they had found this other rider who was going to race it in, uh, in the downhill the day after. So they had taken it over to DBO set like this race tune on it. And so that was the tune I had when I read or when I wrote it. And 
So he was saying that, you know, there's some other tuning that you can do to make it a little bit more plush through high speed bumps and things like that. It's a much different feel, but yeah, I'll be honest. It was a blast ride. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It looked really unique. And, you know, we're seeing that with the trust fork as well, like another design that gets away from the telescoping fork and tries to address some of those issues. And so, yeah, who knows, maybe this is going to be something that takes off and and starts becoming more common in other bikes. Definitely. Yeah. Like the axle path benefits seem really apparent to where it's just a lot more natural. Like you're moving the wheel more backwards over bumps rather than up and over them. Yeah. That, that felt a little bit better, I think on this bike as well. Yeah. So one of the other bikes you got to do a really short test ride on at Sea Otter was the Canyon Strive, which is sort of their aggressive trail bike. What'd you think of it? Yeah, uh, I went out for a quick loop on that one. And again, like like not a ton I could say off of this. I did feel like I had really good traction on the climbs. Seemed to climb pretty well for a 150 mil travel bike. I think it was like a lower end build. So I guess the one thing I could say is like I'm not really too crazy about the tram guide R brakes, hmm. but yeah, I mean, it seemed like, uh, seemed like a trailish enduro bike. Yeah. Just kind of a quick lap around some of those more mild and buff trails, uh, right outside of the venue. And we went out with a couple of Canyons folks, Braden Bringhurst. He's like a ambassador for Canyon rides load up. And I think he lives in Boise, Idaho, super skilled guy on a bike. And then Jeremiah Bishop, who's mm-hmm. kind of like an XC legend. So that was cool to get to hang out with uh, those guys a little bit. And yeah, cool to talk to some athletes for a little. Yeah, that's cool. And then you also checked out bikes from a couple European brands. Nikolai and Tout Terrain brands were there. And both of those were set up with Pinion drivetrains and gates carbon belt drive systems what do you think of those bikes yeah they're um uh, they're really interesting and so we, i will actually get to take out uh zero taniwa or tanifa i'm not mm-hmm. too sure how you pronounce it but it'll have like the pinion gearbox uh gates carbon drive i think later this week with john from gates oh cool so we'll, yeah we'll get a, a review up on that but yeah like the whole idea behind this is to eliminate the traditional drivetrain, you have more of like a train, like a car transmission mm-hmm. type of drivetrain uh, near the bottom bracket. So it's like I grabbed a Nikolai to pedal around the tents and stuff for a few minutes. And it's definitely a much different feeling. I mean, first off, the Nikolai is like this crazy long bike. Like a medium is like a 490 mil of reach. Whoa. So it's super long. And then again, they kind of pair it with like this really steep seat tube angle Mm -hmm. so i think they were really really progressive in that progressive geometry like yeah and it sounds like they've taken it to an extreme (laughs) that others haven't either yeah definitely so yeah again with this like uh the pinion drive i mean stock they're coming with chains and so what the gates does is eliminates even more maintenance then you have the reliability of a carbon belt drive and so it's, it's, it's just crazy reliable. Like I was talking to them and they were saying, I think either once a year or 6,000 miles. So I guess it's a pretty wide difference, but at that variable, then you would do a fluid flush in the pinion gearbox. And so it's, yeah, it's not like you're yeah. adjusting derailleur cables, um, anything like that. And again, I don't know, have you ridden any pinion gearbox bikes, Jeff? And yeah, it's like, so there's pinion, which is the one at the drivetrain and then roll off. 
is sort of the competitor, another internally geared right. system you can run. But that one is in the rear hub. Yeah. And yeah, the pinion is nice because it puts all that weight at the at the bottom bracket. And like you said, it does take some getting used to as, as far as the shifting goes. But yeah, it's notable that these two brands were there in that, you know, they can't just design these bikes to run any kind of drivetrain. I mean, they are designed around the pinion. It's not like a regular mountain bike where you can you can do Shimano or SRAM or you can do an E13 on, on your drivetrain or whatever. Like this, you know, the bottom bracket has to be built so that it can accept that gearbox into it. So yeah, these are dedicated gearbox bikes, which we don't see a lot of here in the U.S. Yeah, and the crazy thing, the one that I had, I, I pedaled around real quick, was a nine-speed, and I was like, what, nine-speed? <laughs> and he's like, well, it's got over 500% range, so just as much mm-hmm. as an Eagle. And then they also have 12-speed options, which are like, I think, 575 or near 600% range, so it's <laughs> it's crazy. So yeah, it's just a, a, a ton of range, gets away from the traditional drivetrain. If you're weighed a little bit more centered, a little bit lower, and then a different shifting experience too, uh, to where it's very instantaneous. But then again, you have to take like all your pedal or all your pedal pressure off to actually let it shift. Right. Yeah. Which is annoying to a lot of people, you know, because we're used to not having to do that. But then the flip side of that is, you know, you could be stopped. You could be just like standing on your bike and you could crank it all the way through all of your gears and you could go one to nine yeah. and then just start pedaling and it's, it's in the right gear, which is kind of cool. And then also it seems like these two brands, well, Tout Terrain especially is using the pinion or, you know, positioning it as like a good choice for bike packing right. uh, because it is, the drivetrain is so low maintenance, you know, it's not, shouldn't cause you any problems like when you're out on the trail and and then with the gates drive as well, you know, the broken chains are less common. <laughs> the flip side is if you break a belt drive, like there's no fixing it. There's no right. quick link for that. So you, you do have to bring a spare, but yeah, get much more wear out of them. And they work, you know, in all conditions, like not really affected by wet and mud and stuff like that. And then I guess too, just bike packers are slightly less worried about weight. And so this kind of, I would think in a lot of ways, it probably balances the bike out because a lot of times you're going to be holding weight up high on your bike packing bike, like up on the handlebars and, you know, at the top tube. And so having that centered weight below the bottom bracket probably like balances the bike out a lot. So it seems like a good choice. Yeah. I can totally see the application for bike packing or even enduro races where it's like, yeah, with that Nikolai or the zeroed, you're not going to be as worried as, as, uh, about busting a chain or mm-hmm. yeah, it'll be interesting to ride one later and really see how that weight placement in the bottom bracket affects handling. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's just different, you know, and it, it is hard to tell from like a quick test ride. It just, you come away from a test ride thinking that was weird. Like shifting was weird. The handling was weird, but I think if you do it for a while, it, it doesn't, it seems more natural and you just get used to it. Yeah. It's definitely Right. It, it has to be just a different feel into where you would want to spend a lot of time on that bike and maybe not on traditional drivetrains. Because they also had a, I forget which one it was, but another Nikolai with a trigger shifter set up 
to where the upshift was on the left handlebar and then they had a downshift on the right handlebar. Mm-hmm. And so again, you're displacing the shifting over now over two hands uh, for a much different feel. Yeah. A lot of possibilities there for sure. So at Sea Otter this year, there were a ton of new products that were being debuted for the first time, or they were things that maybe we saw like announced around Eurobike last year, but now they're finally available. One of the first ones that a lot of people have heard about is Viathon bikes. And this is sort of this premium mountain bike, or should say premium bicycle brand being launched by Walmart. And the bikes are not going to be available in your local Walmart. So um, don't expect to see those anytime soon, but they're carbon fiber bikes that are going to be sold direct to consumer online. And the brand launched, uh, I think they announced just a few days before Sea Otter. And then I got a chance to check out their bikes uh, there at the show, but they launched with a road bike, a like cycle cross gravel bike and a mountain bike. And the mountain bike is, it's a cross country race bike, you know, despite what the marketing material tries to tell you about the bike. It's a really serious mountain bike. It's very lightweight. The builds start at like $2,400, I think, and go up to like $6,000, uh, which is, is kind of a lot for a hardtail, especially a direct-to-consumer hardtail. And I came away from seeing the bike and talking with the brand manager about the bike. Like I came away thinking that maybe... They're still not exactly sure like who the consumer is for this bike and like who the target market is. Because again, it's, it looks like a great race bike. It's really fast looking. Um, it's got a steep head tube angle, 69 and a half. And, but at the same time, they, they say that these bikes are for people who just want to have fun, who just want to go out and ride and, right. and be comfortable and get a good value. And, you know, that all sounds like a Walmart customer to me, which is great. And it makes sense. Like, if they're thinking about somebody who maybe goes into Walmart, gets a, you know, one of the entry level like mongoose or diamondback bikes, whatever it is they're selling at the time and they like it, but they realize like, wow, this thing's heavy and, you know, it doesn't have quite all the features that, you know, my friends mountain bikes have. So I want to upgrade to something a little more capable, but this is like, this is like a huge jump and it's also not really a recreational bike in any way, you know? So it's interesting to see like where they're going to go from here. I don't think this will be the only mountain bike that the company comes out with, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know if they're going to go more aggressive, like if they're going to go toward a trail bike next, or if they're going to try to bring the price point down. So stick with like a cross country and then just maybe have like a little bit more affordable option. But yeah, it, it was interesting because the whole thing seemed kind of like rushed and like they were trying to launch this thing and get the word out like at Sea Otter. You know, maybe they weren't quite ready, but they were like, oh, Sea Otter's coming up. I better get something there. <laughs> but yeah, so everybody's been talking about it, but I think we still don't know a whole lot about what's going to happen with Viathon. Yeah, maybe we need to know a bit more about what Viathon is or what they want to be. Yeah. Like, I feel like you, you have a new bike brand like that. It's like, okay, it's it's carbon, it's nice, has XX1 Eagle. Mm-hmm. It's sold over uh, Walmart distribution online. But why would I want to buy a Viathon over, I don't know, another carbon hardtail that's right. also two grand? Like, what is their company image? What are they there for? I don't think people want to buy a bike just because it's like 
right? It's carbon. It's 2,500 bucks. It says Viathon on it. What else does it mean? Right. Yeah. And they try to do that. You know, it is really hard if you're an online brand, especially to like connect with consumers and to tell your story. And they try to do that on their website. And that's, but that's just where it gets confusing, where they try to say, these are like performance driven bikes, but then in the same sentence, they also say they're meant to be fun and comfortable and approachable and all these other things that, that they don't seem to be, you know? Um, and you, cause you can't be, you can't be both, you know, you need to kind of pick one or the other and then go for that. You know, I think where they hit with this current bike and, and it was designed by, you know, really well-known bike designer. So these are like credible bikes, Yeah, but yeah, they just, <laughs> they're just really racy. And I think that's cool. They just need to embrace that and be like, this is what it is. We're going to go for that market. Yeah. And maybe get it out on, um, you know, if it is that kind of bike, like get it out to world cup athletes, because (laughs) there's a lot of bikes like that. Like I've been researching this world cup bike one and it's like, there's a lot of no name brands out there that Mm -hmm. are still really dominant in the results. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, because it's a, the end of the day, it's a carbon hardtail. It's pretty simple. This one weighs just over a thousand grams, which yeah, I, I haven't done a lot of research on cross-country race bikes. That seems really low. Apparently, Scott has one that's like under 900 grams for the frame, but still really, really lightweight. And, you know, it's got all the, the top-end components on it. So we shall see. Yeah, it would be really interesting if they get somebody to race on it and really show what the bike can do. Yeah, totally. Uh, so other new products. Matt, you wrote about some kind of waterless bike wash. What's that all about? Is it like dry shampoo for your bike? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, a keeps coming out with some new products. Uh, we saw their sealant at Interbike last year, their tire sealant. Um, and so now they have this waterless wash, which, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's not a bad idea at all. If you're somebody who lives in an apartment, I was until recently for years mm-hmm. uh, and always had, a tough time, like getting my bike into a car wash or, you know, like I hate bringing my dirty bike inside and, uh, yeah. having it on the floor and then all that. But anyway, um, uh, what it is, it's a bike wash that you don't need to use water. Uh, so you spray it down. It's, it's not meant for money bikes, not meant for caked on grime or anything. You know, if it's dusty, if it's got a little bit of dirt on it, mm-hmm. you spray it on, take a rag, wipe it off. It cleans it and polishes it. Um, it's more of like a wash in between washes. Interesting. Yeah. I noticed that maybe it's a different product, but I was looking it up earlier and part of the product name, it was like waterless e-bike wash or something. Uh, and it seemed like maybe that was part of the thinking was, you know, people aren't going to want to spray down their electric bikes with water. Like you want to just like hose it down, even though the bikes are said to be, you know, extremely waterproof. Um, but yeah, it just seems like water and batteries doesn't mix. And so maybe that was sort of the genesis of the product. They thought, interesting, you know, this is something people might want to do, but then found, yeah, everybody can use it. There's a lot of other situations where you don't necessarily want to get your bike wet. Yeah, for sure. So let's see what else. We both saw this Saris bike rack. Actually, you saw it at Crankworks last year, the MTR, which is their like premium tray style hitch rack, which is finally going to be available. I I think you're getting a sample soon to test out, um, but it looked pretty sweet, right? 
Yeah, it, it's their big premium flagship rack now that yeah they've been talking about for eight months and now it's coming to fruition so they've they should have them shipping to consumers really soon the media samples being sent out but yeah i mean it's similar to i don't know yeah you would say like a one-up rack and now i think everybody kind of compares these yeah we would say that but there are a lot of these that are that same style that are coming out now apparently because some design patents are expiring or something or other yeah, so it's, it's a tray rack. It's very big, but it, it is a little bit unique in the way that you can kind of store it, get it out of the way. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a it's another tray rack option for mm-hmm. somebody. And I don't know the one-up price off the top of my head. I think this one, uh, I think the MTR is like, uh, it's around 550, I want to say, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I think, I think it's actually, well, for a two-bike, it is, I think it's like $800. Okay. It's a lot. Yeah. 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 I mean, those one up ones are totally machined out every part on it. So it's super reliable, but machining is expensive. Yeah. And this one, it, it looks heavy as well, which I guess a lot of people just leave their, their hitch racks on their car, you know, just all the time, mm. which I don't, it's kind of a hassle getting in and out of the hatch, like when you don't have bikes, but this one folds up really nicely. It folds up like in a number of along a number of different axes so that you can get it up and out of the way, but it does still look heavy. And then, yeah, you can buy it as like a one rack or a two rack, and then they have extensions. So you can go up to four bikes, which is pretty helpful. You know, if you're carpooling or shuttling a bunch of people, Uh, but, but that's super pricey. It's like $1,450 if you get if you get the two bike plus two bike extension. So yeah, super premium, but that's something that Saris didn't have in the past. So it'll be interesting to see how well that does. And then Saris also had a bike rack that like combined a little cargo platform, if you will, with a bike rack. So if you've ever seen people like driving down the road with like their Yeti cooler strapped onto a hitch rack type of shelf thing. Uh, basically they designed that. So it's like a shelf Mm -hmm. and then the shelf has two bike trays attached to that. So you can put your Yeti cooler or like all your, your big Rubbermaid totes with all your like camping stuff on it, um, strap that down. And then you can also carry your bikes. So it's a good cargo option. People who maybe have little cars and like traveling with bikes. Yeah, totally. So also at the show, Giant launched their first dedicated flat pedal mountain bike shoe. And before they had, they did have a sort of a flat gravity downhill shoe, but that has a cleat on it. So this one is completely flat. Giant tends to be like kind of cautious when it comes to releasing products and their product line isn't super wide, I guess you would say. So, you know, if they're going to do a flat pedal shoe, like they're going to do it right. And, and there's only going to be one of them. Like they're not really definitely not trying to be five ten or the ride concepts or anybody like that. So yeah, I got to check out the new shoes, um, and came home with a couple of pairs. I've been wearing one pair for a few days now just to break them in and see how they feel. Um, got on the bike a little bit with them, but they're good flat shoes. They look pretty good. And then you know, they're designed like a lot of these with like a long wear rubber on the heels and the toe so that they don't like wear out super fast. And then the patch in the middle is more sticky. So it's going to stick to your flat pedals better. And they've got some good lace management, 
features on the shoe as well, which is good. And yeah, overall it's a, it's a good shoe and it's, it's pretty affordable priced around a hundred bucks, maybe 110 bucks for the shoes. Um, and they have a women's version as well, uh, and a couple of different colorways for men. So that was a pretty cool launch. And then, yeah, speaking of flat shoes, Matt, you checked out ride concepts. What did you learn from your latest visit over there? Yeah, more flat pedal shoe options. Yeah, uh, which is cool because I mean, if you talk to you talk to ninety ninety five percent of mountain bikers, they think that the market is five ten for flat pedal shoes, and that's it. But there's really a lot of options out there now. I've got some from Northwave that I'm going to be testing. I mean, you saw some new ones from Giant. It's Ride Concepts. There's Giro. I've got a set of Pearl Zoomies in. Yeah, Pearl Zoomies. So there really are a lot of flat pedal shoe options out there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Ride Concepts is coming out with a few more few more shoe options. Um, they'll have a clipless shoe option soon. It's big on development by Rachel Atherton. It's what she's going to be wearing in the World Cup this next season if you know you let athletes influence your shoe choices. But I mean, that can be a big thing You know, if you're getting input and you know your shoes were designed by somebody at the World Cup level. So, I mean, they've had a really big launch, uh, have a big athlete team now and are making some pretty good moves, it looks like, with their whole shoe line. Yeah. Yeah. One of the cool things is like they're putting D3O in parts of their insoles. So usually you'll find D3O in elbow or knee pads and it's like a impact absorbent material. Mm-hmm. So now you'll have it like around, uh, around the heel, around the ball of the foot and the insole which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Will it work to absorb a lot of rocky impacts? I think we'll see, but it's, yeah, it's probably a good idea to try. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's cool to see the safety stuff being integrated into like other products. You see that with packs as well. And yeah, any, any additional protection is good. And we see that on the helmet front too. We're seeing all kinds of new helmet technology this year. Um, we won't bore our listeners with all of that, but yeah, there's, <laughs> there's lots of people that are studying how to improve helmet safety and make them lighter and, you know, deal with rotational impact better and all of that stuff. So yeah, definitely we'll, we'll keep everybody posted on single tracks with articles and product information as it comes out. One of the things I saw for the first time in person was the rotor 13 speed drivetrain. And this is something that we first heard about, yeah, at Interbike or sorry, Eurobike in 2018. And it's, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, just when you just say 13 speed, everybody's like, what? Like, <laughs> oh my goodness. I thought we were done at 12, but right. it's 13 speed. And not only that, it's hydraulically activated. So there's no cable running from your shifter to your derailleur. It's all hydraulic fluid, which oh, well. again, yeah, like mind blown. Like what? I got to bleed my, my drivetrain now, but we're told that it's, it's easy to do. It's not a big deal. You don't have to do it as often because it doesn't get like the heat and stuff associated with, with disc brakes. So Hmm. I believe that. And the line is like much thinner. It's not like a big hose. It's uh yeah, it's much smaller. So apparently easier to deal with. But the one thing that I learned about, um, that I hadn't realized about it is that it's, in a lot of ways, the drivetrain or sorry, the derailleur is more durable than a traditional system. So basically the, the derailleur will 
set itself at whatever position you put it in and it'll just stay there. So for example, if you accidentally do rip that hydraulic hose out, you know, on a ride, um, and have no way to shift, you can simply just like manually push the derailleur in, into the gear that you want and just ride away. It's just going to stay there. There is no like tension from what I understand. That's, you know, like spring tension, that's bringing it back into position. So yeah. So that seems to be an advantage on the trails I ride here in Atlanta, like people rip their derailleurs off a lot or rip cables out or, you know, have derailleur problems and just being able to like single speed it back home in a jam seems like a pretty good feature to have. And the drivetrain, you know, the derailleur looks, doesn't look like a traditional derailleur because it is very different. And so I think some people like the look, some people won't. But yeah, it's finally available for purchase or it is almost available for purchase. Uh, Again, this was something that was announced a while back, but is finally getting closer to consumers. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I like the idea of, at least from the way you explained it, of having a hydraulic line if it works reliably. Yeah, and you know, if something were to break, then you can sort of pop it in and out of the gear you want. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I'm not sure about how all that works, but that's my understanding and sounds pretty cool. I'd love to test it out more. Um, It sounds like, yeah, at some point we probably will get a chance to get our hands on that. And so we'll keep you posted online. Matt, you also checked out some bike bags at Sea Otter and uh, wrote up a little bit about that last week. Uh, Tell us what you found. Yeah, so this was, uh, these are some new products by... Evoc and Ortlieb. Um, and the whole idea behind the Evoc ones are just some smaller frame bags. So some really small frame bags that you can mount like on your top tube right behind your stem uh, or maybe in a frame joint somewhere. And the whole idea is like, yeah, you're getting the way I could see it being used is now you can ditch the fanny pack. You can get your stuff in one of these small frame bags. Mm-hmm. And then it, even better, if you have a water bottle cage mount on your bike like you could go out for rides without wearing a pack at all and have everything loaded on your bike yeah and i've got some bags from north street that i'm gonna test along that it's like uh yeah a couple of frame bags a small top two bag and stuff like that to see how well they fare up for for riding without a pack at all and for getting as much stuff like on the bike trying to figure out something catchy to call it like day packing or something right yeah i've noticed a lot of people are doing that now trying to get more stuff onto the bike and riding without a pack. Yeah. Aside from, you know, I mean like the whole enduro setup of say like a a one up and like tying a tube to your frame somehow is, is good for really short rides or, you know, if you're Mm -hmm. traveling from aid station to aid station, but I kind of want to see how long of rides can you do? Like, can you get out and can you get away for a whole day with some of these bags and not wear a pack at all and like have water? Yeah. Yeah, some snacks, your tool on your bike and everything like that. Yeah, it seems like the key is just as long as they can attach securely to your bike and you're not always like tightening straps and adjusting them and stuff. You know, there was a time several years ago, probably before I started riding with a hip pack that I was using one of those saddle bags, like one of those old school ones that just like dangles from your saddle rails. And man, that thing is great because I could stuff a lot of you know, my tube and a snack and small tools and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, the problem was it just rattled around so much and eventually it would just 
come off because <laughs> the straps and everything would get worn out just from like bobbing up and down. So yeah, I would love to get back to that if there were something that you could reliably attach to your frame. Yeah, the problem I had with saddlebags is that uh, on drops or jumps or whatever, the bag would smash into my rear wheel when the travel compressed. Right. Yeah, yeah. This was pre-dropper posts, so. <laughs> Still safe. Yeah, and then you also checked out, uh, going the other direction, a bag from Ortlieb uh, that's like a, they call it a bike packing bag, but it's, I mean, it's a backpack basically, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a big backpack. Um, and it's got a slot for a hydration reservoir. It's a very big bag and it's also very light, which is crazy. Mm. Yeah. That's nice. Like there's no stitch zippers. It's like, I forget what the guy from Orleap was saying. I think it was like radio frequency zippered or something like that, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it saves like a ton of weight. So it's still a really light bag, uh, and for bike packing. So again, if you're really out there and you can combine this big pack along with frame bags and stuff. I mean, you could take a ton of stuff with you, it seems like. Yeah, and the bag Ortlieb's known for their waterproof bags. So I assume this one's right. waterproof or almost waterproof? Yeah, yeah, waterproof. Uh, especially uh, that same zippering stuff is, um, yeah, that's like one of the technologies they use to make sure that it's going to be waterproof zippers and still safe weight rather than putting like a, a waterproof layer over the zipper and, and adding weight. So Yeah, I know... A lot of people, I mean, for well, some people are not afraid of putting weight on their back for bikepacking. You know, it's a really easy, convenient way to, to get started, right? You don't have to have like custom bags that fit your frame and it's easy to like take it on and off and like get access to it. So it's definitely an option for people who are like not sure where else to go, like for more space on a bikepacking setup. You know, you got your like handlebar roll and then maybe you have a frame bag. Um, but then, yeah, what if you are riding a, a bike, a full suspension bike with a dropper post, like that seat post area is not really available to you. So a bag like this could be a good way to add a little bit of extra space. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So one of my favorite things to do at trade shows and consumer shows alike is to check out weird and interesting products. And there's never any shortage of those at Sea Otter. One of the things that I saw, actually Aaron from Single Tracks previously, um, and how Maxis told me about this Elliptigo stand-up bike. And Elliptigo, you know, they make the, I think it's the same company that makes the exercise machines, the elliptical trainer things. And they have bikes as well, where you can do that like elliptical motion and ride around on a bike. But this, this has nothing to do with ellipses. This is just a bike where you stand up to ride it. There's no seat on it. So yeah, you, you might be thinking like trials bike, but it's, it's a almost a normal size bike. The handlebars are much higher because you're standing up. Um, and so, yeah, I got, I got on one and tried it around just in the demo area there. And it was, it was kind of fun, but it's definitely, <laughs> definitely weird. Um, yeah, it has shifters and brakes and everything like a normal bike but you're just standing up the whole time. And probably a few years ago before I was riding with a dropper a lot, that that probably would have felt much more weird. But I realize now, like, I do a fair amount of riding standing up, whether it's just standing or standing and pedaling. So, you know, it's kind of like riding around on your bike without a dropper, but but being higher up and, I don't know, it's kind of, it's different. It's fun. It looked like a beefed up, 
Razor scooter with pedals, kind of. <laughs> yeah, the wheels are kind of smaller. I didn't check to see. I feel like they're 26 or maybe even smaller than that. Um, probably just so you're not like so high up and you have a little bit more balance on it. But yeah, it could be a fun thing, especially for people who maybe aren't serious about biking. They just want something that's fun, you know, go around the neighborhood on. So yeah, that was, I thought that was really weird. Could you see yourself hitting the trails with it? Uh, I would try it. I would definitely try it. It seemed trail worthy. It didn't have a, any kind of suspension. I guess that's the next step. <laughs> Add suspension to the equation, but then I'm sure it'd be bobbing all around. <laughs> be a fun project. Yeah. Well, speaking of suspension on bikes where you don't expect suspension, there was the Niner full suspension gravel bike on display at Sea Otter. And this was another thing that I think had been announced a while back. I mean, we don't cover gravel bikes, so that's not something that was really on our radar. But just seeing it in person was interesting. It definitely kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities for gravel bikes. and But also at the same time, it makes me think like gravel and mountain bike they're really closely related anyway. Or like, you know, why wouldn't you ride a gravel bike on a mountain bike trail? Or why wouldn't you ride a mountain bike on a gravel trail? There's obviously a lot of, a lot of crossover there. Yeah. But yeah, the bike looks like a gravel bike, but it's got 50 millimeters or so of rear suspension travel. And it's, it's a good looking bike. looks pretty cool. I'd love to give one of those a try. Yeah, definitely. Right. There's a ton of blend where, I don't know, I would imagine people are blending gravel with single track for big routes. This seems like the bike that you would want to do it on. Yeah. And I think you could spend longer days in the saddle without getting worn up or, you know, getting fatigue and, and pain and discomfort. And yeah, it's interesting too, to see the gravel bikes, you know, it's like sort of like mountain bikes, how we're seeing every new bike is like, Oh, now we got clearance for 2.5 inch tires. Now we got clearance for 2.6 inch gravel bikes are doing the same. And so a lot of them now can accommodate, you know, two inch mountain bike tires or 2.2 inch mountain bike tires. So it's definitely blending the line between the two. And it almost, it makes it hard to know what kind of bikes you're looking at too. There was a bike from Rodeo Labs uh, out of Colorado. Uh, They're like a small frame bike company that they, they call their bikes gravel bikes, but this one was built up just like a mountain bike. It had flat bars. It had two plus inch tires. And so, yeah, I, I asked the guy, I was like, what, what kind of bike is this? <laughs> you know, is this a mountain bike or a gravel bike? And his answer was it was a gravel bike, but it's like, man, I don't know. Like it put a suspension fork on it and it's just a mountain bike. So yeah, interesting times. I mean, maybe at the end of the day, we don't need to be hung up on it and just be like, well, it's a bike. And you ride it wherever you want. Yeah, it's. I mean, that kind of seems dead on with a lot of them to where uh, every now and then on the more mild trails around my home, um, like North Table, you'll see people out on some of the lower stuff with a, a drop bar, handlebar bike. And I don't know, I really haven't, I don't think I've ridden any gravel bikes, but mm-hmm. I've ridden a lot of road bike. And to me, I'm sure the geometry is way different, but man, it seems sketchy to have drop bars on a trail, at least for me. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's where I try to to see if there's somewhere you could draw the line where you could say, well, if it has drop bars, then it's not a mountain bike, but there's plenty of bike packing rigs that people have where they take a dedicated mountain bike and put drop bars on it just for comfort or whatever reason. And it's still a mountain bike really. So it's almost like it's got to have 
a number of different factors lined up to where you can finally be like, nope, that's not a mountain bike. Like, is it rigid and has drop bars and the tires are less than two inches? Like, then it's a gravel bike. But any of those other things alone are not going to make it a gravel bike. So, yeah, interesting. Tough line to draw. Yeah. One other cool bike that I saw was a bike from Pole, which is the Finnish brand from Finland. And their bikes, we've written about their bikes before, but they basically CNC their bike frames. So they start with like a huge block of aluminum and basically cut out a bike frame, which seems really like excessive and wasteful and, but also kind of cool. Like that's why we wrote about it initially, but seeing these bikes in person, it makes a lot more sense for like why you would do this. And, and that reason is that you can really like tune the frame a lot more than you can with just like traditional tubing. So like with traditional tubing, you're kind of set with like the stock tubing that you're able to get. So in terms of like the wall thicknesses and the shapes and things, and a big part of optimizing or like keeping the weight down on a bike frame is optimizing those tubes. So having the wall thicknesses be thick where you need a lot of strength and then letting them be thin where you don't need it. And again, there's just like a set number of tube sizes and shapes you can get without like getting into making your own tubes. And even then, like the process is pretty limited. But anyway, these bikes were really lightweight. Like they look beefy and and you think like, oh, it's an aluminum bike. It's not going to be that light. But, but yeah, these were like on par with a carbon bike and they just, they look really unusual too. Yeah. And is the cost, is it a big cost increase being that? Machining kind of takes a lot more time than, than cutting and welding. Yeah, it's a good question. I didn't get a good answer for that. I think it's hard because they're in Finland and yeah, the pricing differences and shipping and like all that comes into play. So it's hard to say like if the manufacturing is more difficult. I think they're, it, I think it's on par because there is all that labor involved with like fabricating a frame, you know, like welding all those joints. Whereas right. for this, like they literally just you know, push a button on the computer and it like prints it out basically. I mean, it just cuts it out of this block of aluminum. No human has to do a whole lot. I mean, there is finishing that happens. So they, they do it in like two halves. So you imagine like cutting the frame, like straight down through the tube. I don't know how to explain this, but yeah, it's like two halves that are then kind of glued together. Gluing is actually what they're trying to to do now. In the past, they like bolted the two halves together but yeah, they're, they're also able to like more quickly innovate so they can do a frame and then, you know, find something or somebody makes a suggestion for like a feature they'd like to see on the frame or like they want to tweak the spacing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all that is, is like modify the computer file and then <laughs> print up another one. So finally, I wanted to just talk about sort of the scene at Sea Otter. You know, Sea Otter has been going on for a long time and has seen a number of changes over the years. And Matt, I know this is your first year, but Sea Otter was definitely bigger than it's ever been before. And I think part of that has to do with Interbike being canceled. Did you hear people talking about that or or could you sense that the vibe was a little bit different this year maybe than in past years? Yeah, absolutely. I know I asked one or two people from some of the brands that were there if Sea Otter seems bigger than it did in the past because Interbike was canceled. And both of them were like, yeah, it's a definitive yes. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned they had 
added like two rows uh, after the cancellation of Interbike to accommodate. Yeah, some like 20 or 30% more exhibition space than they've had in the past. Yeah, I mean, it was a big setup. Like we had a lot of uh, appointments and everything. And man, I wish I like had turned on my pedometer that day just to see how much was walking around. But it's a really big setup and there's there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's different too from Interbike. Well, one, because anybody can go. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, there's a lot of cool products there, just buy a ticket and you can go you can go there the whole time. There's no like special media days or dealer days or anything like that. It's just wide open. And and it is a different vibe than say Interbike. Interbike is all about commerce and about like selling product to retailers and, you know, marketing stuff to to media to some degree, but Sea Otter has this like bike culture component to it that some of the other shows don't have. And so you have people there racing and you have people who bring their like personal weird bikes that they've been like hacking together over the years. And you've got older riders and younger riders, a lot of kids. So yeah, it's just cool to, to see all of that happening. And it's good for the brands too. You know, they get to talk directly to consumers and yeah, definitely. I mean, it seems like, um, after Interbike, it, it sounded like Interbike had done so poorly because it wasn't very consumer oriented. And now a lot of brands want to shift to that. And so mm-hmm. there's a cool thing about Sea Otter is it's not like, oh, hey, we're media. We're talking to the brands like regular Joe Schmo. You got to you can't be here right now. And, you know, I mean, the whole bike industry is supported by consumers. So it's like, why not be inclusive to that aspect of the bike industry also? Yeah. And so for them to come and interact with all these brands to see athletes and, you know, have autograph signings and do a race if they want. And yeah, there's a lot going on. So it's, it's pretty cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's crazy that there are all those athletes just walking around and you can, you can go up and talk to them. A lot of them have, they'll have like a autograph signing at a booth, you know, at like a set time where you can go by. But you know, if you want to meet Seth from Seth's bike hacks, like he's just walking around and you can go up and talk to him and, tell him what video you want to see him make next. And, you know, I saw Danny McCaskill like coming out of the porta potty and stopped to talk to him. And yeah, he's just a nice guy as always. And just like, Hey, what's going on? So yeah, that to me is really unique. And, and then there's, there's the like demo events as well. Danny was there doing his drop and roll tour. So if you've got kids, they can go and watch that even adults it was mostly adults watching it actually i think i mean yeah it looked like grandparents there with like their kids and like they'd you know maybe not ever seen people do anything like that on a bike i mean i never i never saw mm-hmm. danny mccaskill ride before <laughs> yeah uh last week so yeah it's pretty cool to see right the youtube videos are real that's not all just like cgi like he, he can actually do cool stuff on a bike yeah. And then, yeah, there's just all the athletes. Some of them are racing. Some of them are just there representing their brands. But um, we got to ride with Aaron Chase and we saw, I met with Adam Craig and Jeremiah Bishop. And, you know, yeah, we just saw all these these racers and, and influencers as well. Skills with Phil. Phil Metz was there. So yeah, it's just, it's just really awesome to like see all these people in person and like get to breathe the same air as, as everybody in the bike industry. It's just really cool. Yeah. Very cool experience. 
All right. Well, this podcast essentially wraps up our sea otter coverage for 2019. There are some stories that we kind of touched on here that you're interested in learning more about, or you want to see photos of some of the products that we saw, be sure to go to single tracks. And remember, if you're enjoying the single tracks podcast, you can rate us on iTunes, be sure to subscribe. So you get all the latest episodes right on your phone and also subscribe to our newsletter where you can get our latest articles every week. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.